A word of warning. What follows includes harrowing testimony and graphic descriptions of human rights violations. The Truth Commission's symbolic hearings into gross human rights abuses moved from Cape Town to Johannesburg between April and May 1996. Again, a number of themes were raised under the ceiling and the cross of the Central Methodist Church where the hearing was held. For the first time, an ordinary apartheid policeman came across as being sympathetic towards the comrades and opposed to the free reign of the notorious security branch. South Africans of Indian origin were finally recognized for their role in the liberation struggle. But some of these shifts in the Truth Commission script were lost on all but those paying the most undivided attention as the pain first experienced in East London resurfaced. Darren Taylor and Anki Samuel returned to the Johannesburg testimonies. They put two chairs on either side of the Louvre window and one policeman got on either chair and they dragged me to the window and then they said you can now jump. Abdullah Jasset. I refused. They grabbed me by my shoulders and lifted me physically up and pushed my head out of the window. And they were holding me by my ankles. All I could see was the concrete floor at the bottom. We were three floors up. And all of a sudden, one of them would let go of one foot. As he's about to catch my foot, the one that he had released, the other chap let's go. And they played like that and you know, you thought this is the end because there's no way you can get out of it. Now this is an important factor because I think when they said, for example, that Babla Saluji jumped from the window, I think it's a lie. I think they did the same thing to Timol at John Foster Square where he too fell from the 10th floor. The torture of activists in cells and in township streets continues to dominate the Truth Commission. There are fears that people listening to the testimonies of victims every day will become desensitized. Yet each new disclosure further exposes the degradation, humiliation and dehumanization that the apartheid security forces instituted and cherished. South Africa, for many, was hell on earth. I saw him connecting this earphones. He didn't hear me because the last thing I said to him, why doesn't he put it onto the hypha so that I could also listen? Sepatim Langeni. I don't even think he even heard a thing of what happened, what was in the cassette. Of course, within seconds, I had a big explosion, big noise. I thought it was a gun. The last thing I saw. I just saw him falling down slowly. My daughter and came rushing and just said, Peggy. Catherine Mlangeni. 
He just said, what's wrong with Peggy? My daughter-in-law just said, Mama, Peggy at the garage. I was surprised what's this garage story about. When I came out, they held me. They said, please don't go in there. I just skipped through their legs and went in. I found Peggy, he was in pieces. He was hanging on Katniss, he was all over. Pieces of him and brains, all of it was scattered around. That was the end of Peggy. Truth Commission member Yul Lewin is still haunted by the sounds of fellow political prisoners being led to the gallows. Lewin says there was a marked difference in the methods of torture that the apartheid government's lackeys used in the 60s, 70s and 80s. There was a clear move from the 60s where it was a sort of free and open house for the police or the security police. They had 90 days, then they had 180 days, then they had virtually, you know, as much time as they liked. Then, through the instances, for instance, of Neil Agat's death, that was a watershed. In February, Neil was found hanging from his cell. And the question really for everyone was, he killed in interrogation and hung up, or did he in fact take his own life? Liz Floyd. I think with with Neil's death, um, people's worst fears about detention were confirmed. Everyone knew this could happen, but I think it's still very shattering when it does happen. And what was a bit unusual about Neil was that he was the first white person to die in detention. The next watershed came with David Webster, whereby they saw that they had to be very careful in terms of how they interrogated people and what they did. They didn't stop them doing it, but they had to be more careful. The assassination of David Webster and the subsequent attempts to identify the perpetrators and planners of this can't be seen in isolation, nor viewed as an individual incident. Maggie Friedman. I believe that assassination of selected opponents of the apartheid-based state form part of a carefully planned strategy. The Truth Commission has so far allowed victims to name their torturers in the apartheid security forces, but this small measure of justice is shattered in Johannesburg. Here, the Truth Commission advises them not to name their torturers, following the successful court application of two former security policemen. So when George Olyphant is asked whether he knows who killed his brother Benji, he comes across as a man muzzled. Do you know the boy who informed the police that Benji and them were in a car? Yes, I know his name. I know him very well. Do you know the person who said when they see Benji, they would kill him? Yes, I know him very well. In the Eastern Cape, the response to such questions is unequivocal. It is former security policeman Gideon Nivout. In the Western Cape, the name of the security policeman with a red scarf around his head who roamed the townships in his red valiant touches almost every victim's lips. Barry's Barnard. But it's in Johannesburg where a uniformed policeman active during the apartheid years first separates the wheat from the chaff. Those atrocities were done mainly by the security branch. Gregory Beck. And the security branch had full reign of anything that they wanted to do. And, you know, they excluded the rest of the police force out of what they done. They were like uh, a law unto their own. The oral testimony of Cornish Makanya is arguably the most disturbing. He buries his head in his arms and sobs and sobs. At the age of 18, 
He was one of his school's top athletes, but he was also an activist. They took the stick. They put it between my knees underneath and they took my hands and handcuffed them. What they are doing. And when I asked them what they were doing, they said, I'm talking a lot, I know a lot. They took off all the cords, those cords on my head. They took these two cords. They put them on my private parts. After they put these uh, cords on my private parts, they put this machine on. I got torn underneath. person with appropriate words for all these harrowing accounts is Truth Commission Chairperson Desmond Tutu. There's been a lot of evil. I mean, there's been a lot of evil in this country. It's being exorcised, but there's been a lot of evil. Uh, for goodness sake, uh, let's not try to be justifying what happened. It was bad, it was evil. One witness has a dark suit and waistcoat and a glove on his hand to help with the arthritis, and a stick. Thirty years before, he didn't need a stick to stir the streets, him and the other kids. They picked him up, he said, and roughed him up a bit in Alex before taking him to Pretoria. Kompol, the big house, their house, with the warrens of officers like cells in corridors where they do what they want. And they start giving him the treatment, pausing only to bring in another pickup, looking dazed to watch, while they batter him and batter him and batter him. But I was lucky, he said. I shut myself. And they said, Yassas, maar die kaf het gekak, en vat om weg, hy stink. They start instead on the spectator. He is from Cape Town. His name is Luxmart. By morning, he's dead. Another witness tells how she heard about her teenage son, how he'd been in the street with friends when a passing hippo shot him. No sense to it, no reason. Then they collect him, she said, still alive, and batter his head against a rock. Twenty years later, tall and high-pitched, she spits fury, red-hot. Maybe, she says, crumpling into her pain, he'd still be here if they hadn't hit his head against the rock. Three witnesses together. Grannies with dukes and darting eyes take it in turns to weep as they tell of their children across the border in the safety of Gaborone. So many details of the cars they took to get there, the scenery along the way, all the details. The soldiers, they explain, shot anything that moved 
and raked the cupboard where the overnight visitor hid, tore even the cupboard to pieces, pieces to pieces. There was this large white sheet at the funeral, she said, with all the names listed, and his wasn't there, wasn't there, wasn't there, but there, right at the bottom. Ah, Joseph. Afterwards, the hall echoes with the laughter of kids in the square outside, and we sit wondering about these lists of bodies, and mortuaries and more mortuaries, and coffins, 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 and the glistening eyes of mothers and survivors. The evening shadows ring with the sounds of the children, and you have to think of tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow.